Tonight I'd like to talk about self-inquiry and I'd like to talk about it from a lot of different angles. So this is going to be the who, what, when, where, why, and how of self-inquiry. So we can call this self-inquiry journalism style. The self-inquiry that I think most people are familiar with is, is who? Who am I? Who am I? In the most superficial sense, maybe I think I am uh, a person named Kenneth who was born in Los Angeles and is now married to Beth. But I want to go deeper than that. I want to go deeper than, than these ideas about who my personality is based on history or even based on current relationships. I want to go deeper. So who am I? I could say I'm a man. But that's also relative to relative to something else. Who am I if I can't refer to anything if I can't refer to anything else, just just in the in the in this moment, who am I? It's a good it's a good idea to start with who I think I'm not. And then we'll see if we can get anywhere from there. So I always like to look around and find something that I think I'm not. I don't think I'm the clock on the wall because I'm over here looking at the clock over there. I don't think I'm the, I'm the bush in the corner because I'm over here looking at the bush over there. I don't think I'm any of the people in this room other than perhaps this one called Kenneth. So what is this one called Kenneth? Is it these body sensations? Who am I? Am I these body sensations? Well, actually, I think not. Because I can say I'm having these body sensations. So it's very similar to being able to look at the clock. I mean, I can look at the body sensations and say, I'm looking at that. So I must be the one who's looking. I must not be the body sensations. Who am I? Am I these thoughts? I don't think so, because I can see these thoughts, or at least these thoughts can be seen. So if there is an I, I must be the one who's watching the thoughts. Who am I? I haven't come up with any, I really haven't come up with any good candidates yet for who I am. So in the who, what, when, where, why, and how sequence, the next one would be what. What is it exactly that makes me think this is me?
if it's not this body, if it's not these body sensations, and if it's not these thoughts, it's not anything that's being seen by the, by the eyes, maybe there's some special sense, maybe there's some special deep sense of I. So let me see. If there is some kind of a felt sense of I, wouldn't that just be more body sensations and more thoughts? I still can't come up with a candidate, a plausible candidate for I, and yet of course there is most people report that there is this sense that this is I, this is happening to me. So we have to look into it. Who, what, where? Where am I? If I have this felt sense of I, where is that? Now where do I think the I is? Am I in this head? Could I cut off all of the other parts of the body and just leave the head and would that still be me? It's an interesting thing to think about because if, if you cut out my liver and transplant another liver into it, I would probably just accept that, okay, this is me now, even though it's a different liver. What about my, my arm? I could get an arm transplant. It hasn't really affected my sense of eye at all. My head? I don't know. It would be interesting to find out. But it's actually very difficult to think that there is an I located any place. And by the way, what about the panoramic sense of, of awareness that sometimes people report, especially in meditation? This is considered a very highly prized situation. People will say, well, suddenly I didn't feel like I was just stuck here in this little body personality anymore. I was everything. I was the whole universe. So in this case, the answer, where am I, apparently would be everywhere. So this is pretty squirrely. If I can't decide, it, it, it depends. Sometimes I appear to be here in the body. Sometimes I, I seem to be the entire universe. So where am I is further confusing this issue of who I think I am. And by the way, these, those unitive experiences that are so highly valued by meditators, in fact, that's just another experience. However wonderful, however unitive and subtle and blissful, ecstatic, it really doesn't have a greater claim to ultimate reality than thinking that I'm in my head if I'm identifying with this consciousness. And I'm trying to figure out what basis do I have to, to identify with this, with these phenomena, universal or contracted or otherwise. Who, what, when, where, who, what, where, when. 
So when? When am I? Am I always here? Or am I here sometimes and not here other times? Now I'm not talking about imagining times when we've gone to sleep. I'm saying let's look at it right now. Am I always here? If I do a note, if I do a binary style note, a noting practice where I say self-referencing yes or no, and then I would just sometimes say yes and I would sometimes say no, when you do this practice what you find is that sometimes you appear to be self-referencing and sometimes there appears to be no self-referencing. In which case this, this question, when am I, reveals another interesting thing. When am I? I am sometimes. I'm not all the time. And when you put this together with the question what, so you've got when and what, well depending on when, the what answer is different. So sometimes I think there's an I because there's some kind of a, a felt sense of this body moving in space, which actually turns out to be something called proprioception, the, the felt sense of the, this body image. So even when you close your eyes, you can, uh, you can feel where your body is. You can see where your body is. This is proprioception. That's one way that the eye, the apparent eye, is formed. Another one is the emotional eye. So if, uh, if in this moment I feel someone has done me an injustice and I feel indignant, there's an implied eye there. Who feels indignant? Well, I feel indignant. Someone took advantage and now I feel indignant. But notice that's not the same as the proprioceptive eye. So the baton has been passed from one apparent eye to the next, very quickly and seamlessly, and we didn't even notice. We think, no, it's me the whole time. There's another way of creating the apparent eye, which is through thoughts, the narrative. This is the narrative eye. I remember when I was a child in Southern California. That's a way that I can create an eye. But I've just passed the baton again. I lost sight of the emotional eye, and I lost sight, or I should say the emotional eye didn't arise. The proprioceptive eye didn't arise. Now it's all about the story. Now there's the narrative eye. And I didn't even notice the baton being passed. How quickly and how seamlessly it was passed and if I'm not paying attention, I can just keep buying in to this circle of apparent selfing. But what if I am paying attention? What if I'm asking these questions? Who, what, where, and when am I? I am turning out to be very fishy. Who, what, where, when, and why? Why do I think this is me? And why do I think that is not me? It seems very natural, very instinctive, to privilege one set of phenomena over another. 
I can see the bush in the corner, but somehow I don't think that's me. And yet, another set of phenomena, the ones I just described, the emotional subsystem of selfing, the proprioceptive subsystem of selfing, and the narrative, somehow that, although it's just another set of phenomena, I'll buy in. And why? Why do I think this is me? And it's a very interesting thing that you can do. If you're walking down the street and you look at a tree or a signpost and you say, why don't I think that's me? And you can't really come up with a good answer. In that moment, why don't I think that's me? It's being perceived. And if I don't go into a story about it, I can be confused for just a moment. And that confusion, that disorientation is pure gold. Why don't I think that door is me or that clock? Why don't I think that person sitting across the room is me? To allow yourself to be confused, to be disoriented for a moment in this way, is beginning to soften this habitual tendency to insist that this particular set of sensations is me. This goes both ways. Why do I think that isn't me? And why do I think this is me? Who, what, when, where, why, and how? How do I feel? When I ask myself how I feel, I can feel these body sensations. But are these body sensations me? I just don't think so. I think I'm the one who knows these body sensations. So how do I feel? If I don't have recourse to these body sensations to answer the question, how do I feel? Now I'm not suggesting that we deny the body sensations, far from it. I'm suggesting that we go ahead and feel them very, very intimately, very, very carefully, very richly. Feel that this body see that this body is not I, and then ask this question, how do I feel? Similarly, I can look at thoughts. I can say, how do I feel? And I can say, well, I have these thoughts. Well, these thoughts are also not I. So if I don't have recourse to these thoughts, how do I feel? I'm not getting anything at all. If I'm not the body and I'm not the thoughts, I don't feel any way at all. I'm not finding an I to have any feeling. 
So when you say, how do I feel in this context, you're saying, what is my mind state? And mind state is something we work a lot with on the Vipassana side. We note mind states. You can note interest and curiosity, anger, compassion, love, aversion. Those are all mind states. But what are those? What are these mind states? In fact, the reason that we're looking so carefully at mind states and naming them is to see through them. We're seeing that they're a mirage. What's really going on is a body state. You know when you feel love because your body feels that. You know when you feel anger because it's a particular recipe. It's a flavor. This is all in the body. And if you think about something like free-floating anxiety, this becomes very apparent. If I say, how do you feel? And you say, I feel anxious. And I say, why do you feel anxious? And you might say, well, because I'm afraid I'm going to miss the train. But then we get on the train. You haven't missed it. And I say, how do you feel? You say, I feel anxious. Why? I thought you said it was because you're going to miss the train. Well, no, I feel anxious now because I have some stuff to do at work and I don't know if I can get to it. But when the deadline for that stuff goes by and you still feel anxious, doesn't you have another reason for anxiety? Anxiety is a body state. Anxiety influences your thoughts and your thoughts can influence your body state of anxiety. But if you take those two things and look at them carefully, here's this body, and here are these thoughts. Where is this mind state, this other thing, this compounded quasi-entity that we think of as a mind state or an emotion or an attitude? It just isn't there. It just doesn't exist. We can only come up with an emotion or an attitude or a mind state by compounding body stuff and mental contents. So what is my mind state? None. I don't have a mind state. I've never had a mind state. I don't have a mind to have a state. I can't find this mind. I can find contents of mind and sensations in the body and no mind state. So how do I feel? Well, for one thing, I feel fine because in the moment of noticing that there isn't anybody here to have a mind state, something does happen in the body. The body relaxes. There's a sense of peace, which is itself a body state. I know what peace feels like because the body feels peaceful. There are ideas that are consistent with peace. I'm okay. Whatever happens, this is a peaceful idea. And all of this is happening as a result of noticing that I don't have a mind state. Not having a mind state is a remarkably free, it's a remarkably free thing to notice. Now, in fact, it's the same for all of us. None of us have a mind state. But if we get confused and we compound body stuff in the contents of the mind, 
we invent a mind state. And along with the mind state, you're inventing a self. And this self is inherently unsatisfactory. It knows it can't win somehow, and it's not happy about it. It's always afraid of dying because it doesn't really exist. How do I feel? When we look at self-inquiry from all of those directions, who am I? What am I? What is it that thinks, what is it that makes me think I am? Where am I? When am I? Why do I think this is me and why do I think that isn't me? And how do I feel? It's a pretty comprehensive package. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for this apparent self. Taking all this together, we can, we can put one final nail in the coffin of the apparent I. If you think about this in terms of looking in and looking out, like a friend of mine just pointed this out to me the other day, and I think this is, this is really rich. Looking in and looking out. Now if I look in, I'm going to find some phenomena. And if I'm really looking closely, I'm going to find no self. If I look out, I'm going to find some phenomena, and if I look very carefully, I'm going to find no self. So I'm looking in, no self, looking out, no self. Where is the self hiding? The self is hiding on the very edge of that bubble, on the very boundary there, looking in and looking out. This, there's another implied self here. This is the, the point of view, this perspective of making that distinction. Making that distinction between self and other. We really don't have any good basis for which to make this distinction, self and other. It's, it's a, a habit. We're privileging one set of phenomena over another. But when we look at where the self is hiding here, right on the edge of that, it's a place where we're digging in, trenching in to say, from here, we can look in or we can look out. Well, let's look at that very spot. Let's look at this boundary between self and other. And it gets very fuzzy, very blurry. The boundary between self and other, it doesn't hold up. You can't really find out where you begin, where you end, and, and other begins.
if you're doing this kind of inquiry and you feel disoriented, brilliant. Be disoriented. How do I know I'm not the traffic noise outside? Why do I think I'm not? Why do I think I am over here? I just don't have good answers for any of this. What I have is a very still, pristine sweetness every time I realize that this apparent I cannot be found. This is something that you can do at any level of development. Beginner, intermediate, advanced yogis can do this. You can see for a moment there's nobody home and you can get this whiff of peace. And if you do it more, you get better at it. And it gets to the point where you really just can't sustain the misperception anymore. It's just clear all the time. Where am I? Nowhere. Who am I? No one. What am I? What makes me think this? Nothing makes me think this. When am I? I'm not. Why do I think this is me and that's not me? I don't think that. And how do I feel? I don't feel any way at all. And at the same time, this body feels wonderful. These thoughts are, are positive. Because because the apparent I was the problem. The apparent I was a misperception that can be cured. And the cure for it is to investigate, is to inquire in this way. Who am I?